What do you get when the audacious and the therapist collide? A crash course in unpolished therapy. Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca aren't afraid to spin out of control, tackling all the tough talk. Their weekly sesh meets at the corner of Audacity and Advice, where their wheels and yours get turned upside down. Hi, everyone. Happy Wednesday. It's Rachel Silver Cohen and Dr. Boca. So you know what that means. It's another episode where we have ditched the couch. We are grabbing the mics and we are going to break down all of the unpolished wreckage here on the corner of Audacity and Advice. Good morning, DB. How are you today? Good morning, Rach. I'm doing great. And I'm really, really excited because... I, after everything that's been going on in the media and in our lives over the last several months, I racked my brains and I said, I, you know what? We need to address this. And the bonus is that this is a topic that you are going to absolutely love. So I say all of that and you're going to say, okay, DB, what is it? And what it is, is I really wanted to bring somebody on to dig a little bit deeper, no pun intended, on death. Okay, mm. death, bereavement, coping with it, grief, and all of the components of this heavy topic, but only like you and I could do, which would be like make it a little unpolished and a little light. So we see it in the news all the time. You know, we go back to Ellen's DJ Twitch, who I absolutely adored, Lisa Marie Presley. I mean, look at me naming people because I never can name anyone famous. And obviously, we're coming up on for us local people and our listeners who are local, we're coming up on February 14th, which is always a really tough day here in the South Florida area because of Stoneman Douglas. We have the football player where I'm going to mess up his name, but that, you know, was hit and just went down and the entire world was coming together and just rallying. And thank God he didn't die, but it brought up, I'm sure, for a lot of people, you know, football, how dangerous it is and the likelihood that somebody could pass. I know what his name is because my kids are such football crazy lunatics, but Damar Hamlin. And you're right, Dr. Boca, I watched that happen live when I was watching Monday Night Football with my son, thrilled that he's alive. But in that moment, I was like, oh my God, that's it. He's done. Dead. See you later. RIP. Six feet under. Yeah. And it was such a, I mean, happening on live TV when it was happening. And just people from all different stages of their life kind of watching this happen, children who are watching it to the adults who are and the loyal fans. I mean, it was just, it brought up a lot of emotion. Thank God he's doing great and all good things. But it, it kind of just was like, gosh, this is happening over and over and over again. And I know it's one of your topics that like you're fascinated by. So I took it upon myself to reach out to somebody who I have the highest regard for, and I would love to introduce her to you and to all of our listeners. So I'm going to take this time because whether you want to do it or not, Rach, we're going to talk about it, and I'm going to try to at least assuage some of your curiosity and also hopefully assuage some of our listeners' anxiety and at least give them some understanding and context around death and bereavement. And I invited Karen Rosenberg to join us to do that. She's a licensed Florida clinical social worker who holds a master's degree in social work from Ohio State University and a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Texas. She has a private practice here in Boca, and I do refer to her quite often, and I do, like I said, have a very high regard for her. She provides psychotherapy and hypnotherapy to literally almost everybody, children, teens, adults, couples, families, you name it. She's trauma-trained. She does EMDR, which I also have a high regard for as a treatment approach. She has extensive, extensive experience 
but most specialized in grief and loss, trauma, and reproductive mental health. She lectures. She's an expert witness on grief and loss. She teaches as an adjunct professor. She has extensive experiencing facilitated bereavement support groups. She provides crisis counseling and critical incident stress debriefing, which is always needed in those hardest of moments. Honestly, she belongs to every professional organization, and I feel shamed in the process because I so don't, but it is amazing all the things that she has done. And she is a force in our community as well outside of the mental health field. She is on the board of trustees and out of her local synagogue and is just the go-to for all things death and bereavement. I mean, I I don't know if you want to be known that way, Karen, but I do want to introduce you and welcome you, Karen, to our or Unpolished Therapy podcast. I'm not sure that's the greatest way to be known, but it is in my world, I have a high regard for that. So welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you so much to the two of you. Honestly, I'm sitting here, I know this is audio and I'm smiling, I'm laughing and I'm thinking because my husband calls me Dr. Death. So you might be, you might be Dr. Boca, right? But he calls me, oh, Dr. Death. And it's funny. He's probably the only person that calls me that because it's highly inappropriate in my office, but it works. And you know, like, why would I want to do this work? Who knows why? I love the work and I am very grateful. Thank you so much for letting me be on this with you both. Well, if I can just say, Karen, that I don't even know your husband, but I love him because definitely two, I guess, dark, deranged minds maybe think alike. I didn't call him Death Doc. Doctor, but I'm calling you now Dr. Death. That's what was going through my mind, right? So I call Dr. Boca DB. I'm very big on nicknames and you are now Dr. Death. <laughs> At least for the purposes of this podcast. Thank you for being with us today. I was going to say, I won't use that when I refer people to you. I will kind of rein it in and not be that unpolished, but I do love it. Dr. Death, that works awesome. So I have to ask the most obvious question, right? All the specializations in therapy and mental health, what in God's name drew you towards like grief and bereavement and all this trauma and heavy shit? I mean, oh my God, what is going on in that brain of yours? Thank you. I wonder that myself. No, the ironic thing is it's like, not that I sought out to do this, believe me. In grad school, I was studying child and family counseling. This was not a specialization. It was not like I experienced all these crazy, difficult traumas and loss. And I said, this is it. I'm going to research and throw myself into this world. I was actually, while I was at Ohio State, working at Marshall Fields in retail, (laughs) picking up people's clothes from the floor, like literally like I'm their servant. And I had to get in the field. I need did a job in grad school, like get me out of retail. This is absolutely horrific. And back then we had what's called bulletin boards mm-hmm. where people would like put a little thingy up yeah. to look for a job and actual mailboxes. And there was a part-time grief counselor position that I thought I, maybe I could do this. I don't know. It's something that's not hanging up clothes. And I interviewed at this local hospice in Columbus, Ohio. And really, I owe a lot of my career to Myra Clark. Thank you, Myra. Uh, It became very full circle when she had me be a contributing author to her professional book. I'm like, you're my mentor. She took a chance on some 20-something-year-old girl that hadn't had a lot of loss, like major loss, and really created the trajectory. They hired me, and that was it. So I kind of fell into it because I just didn't want to work in retail. (laughs) 
I mean, look, who would have thought that death would beat out retail? But, you know, I guess people who have done retail would probably say, yeah, I would do death also if I were her. So, well, I think the field is very appreciative that you hated retail as much as you did because you really are Dr. Death at this point. So I guess the question that I have most is as people come into your office, where are they? Like, what are they experiencing? What does that look like? And how do you kind of start that process with them? Because I've got to imagine you don't know what, I mean, just from my own experience, you don't know what's walking in, but where are they typically when they walk in? There's a range. So I've found over the years, people either come in like right away, like immediately, whether Somebody told them that they need to go talk to somebody. Somebody referred them to me that they need to go speak to somebody immediately or it's months down the road and there's like kind of a sweet spot that could happen. I'm not a big time frame person, Mm -hmm. but like there can be this like period of time, generally speaking, four to six months later that that might be the first time that they're coming in. So sometimes they're in like immediately and also depends if it's like a, a crisis, if it was a traumatic loss, like a sudden loss versus an anticipatory you know, grief, somebody who was a caregiver for a long period of time. So it can present kind of different. Sometimes people might come in in that anticipatory phase. If they have young kids, they need to talk to their kids. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to do some preparation work. So it's kind of across the board how people are, where they're at, whether it's like total shock, I'm in like a crisis mode or emotional or... Karen, for laymen like me, we do hear cliche or not. And we say a lot on this podcast that, you know, we can't stand cliches, but they are cliches for a reason. We hear about these stages of grief, right? Whether that's commercialized or marketed for like the death topic, if you will. And I wonder in real time with a real patient, is that tangible? Are there real stages? And if so, can we talk about that? So for our listeners out there, we can itemize and you can walk us through that process. Sure. Sure. So I know you're referring to Elizabeth um, Ross. Yeah, Kula Ross, who came up with this term, the five stages of grief. And most of us in this world of grief really don't ascribe to that. So whereas her research, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, her research was really with the dying. So that five stages model, it was really research with people that were dying, the Mm -hmm. dying process. So that is not what I go to. That is not my thing at all. And again, most colleagues don't. Yeah, it's so interesting because that is not how I was trained on it. That's crazy. That is like, I'm going to walk away with that. Huge tidbit. So thank you for that. So wait, and like, let's break that down for a minute. Again, as a layman, DB, I love that you now, even though you too are a professional, your reaction to that was one of, it was so innocent that you were almost surprised that we think like, oh, okay, anger, resentment, sadness, or, you know, yada, yada. I don't even know what the other ones are. I wonder, is that like a societal, like you're, you basically now, Karen, have like debunked a myth then. So with that being said, and I know we're being general here, but let's put that to the side then. We're basically throwing that in the garbage. And now what do we do? Sorry, Elizabeth, we're totally not throwing it in the garbage. No, I'm joking. <laughs> we're unpolished here. No, we are. So, right. Yeah, that's all. It's all good. So in my office, I keep a slinky mm-hmm. and I use the slinky as kind of that metaphor of what that grief is like, that it isn't like this first, you go through this stage, then the second, then the third, it's up and down and in and out. And I was trained and what I love, and I've 
studied with this person. He's very, very well in the community. I have like a couple of models. If somebody were to like really pin me to like what I use to think of like grief and loss is William Warden's Tasks of Mourning. Oh, that's, yeah. That's, yeah. And he, and it's amazing. Grief counseling, grief therapy. It's like a book this big. So it's really easy reading and it's understandable. And so there's these like four tasks. Like the first is accept the reality of the loss. Like that's the first one. Process the pain of grief or process the emotions. That's the second one. Adjust to a world in which that person's no longer here. That's a huge one, right? That's like the major, major thing that you're going through, going through the emotions, making that adjustment. And then the final one is finding a way to remember to acknowledge, to kind of incorporate the loved one into our life. That's where you see a lot of people get involved in charity work Mm -hmm. or, you know, those kinds of things. So I use that. Clients will literally come in and ask, you know, about the five stages of what stage they're at. Those emotions are all real. People go through denial and anger and bargaining, all that. That's legit. But this is kind of the model, I guess, that I would use more so. And I do love that. I mean, you know, there is a part of it when you go through something and there's like almost... I don't want to use the word criteria, but there's behavioral markers or there's action-oriented things. It gives somebody something to ground to. And I think that that's so important, especially during grief, because it's probably the most ungrounding of most anything, you know, other than other traumas of abuse and things like that. So, Rachel, I just wanted to say something to you. There is a lot that we were taught, you know, again, aging us, right? There's a lot in psychology and mental health and and social work and things that we were taught that not that they're not that they're obsolete right now they've just informed a whole new generation of thought like i don't know about you karen but even even the way that we work through trauma in general and the you know the developmental trauma there was not a lot of teachings about that right and so it kind of raises a whole new school of thought with all these different EMDR and all these other types of reprocessing and other types of therapies. So it's not unusual, but this one was one that just seemed like the staple to end all staples. I do want to make two points here. One is love the slinky analogy. I've always used the wave, the ocean waves coming in and going out. But the other thing that I wanted to kind of point out is we kind of, when we're going through grief, you were saying in the last question, we talk about the sudden and the people that are healthcare workers or not healthcare workers, but taking care caretakers, I guess, of significant others. Caregivers, caregivers. Thank you. That's the word I could not come (laughs) up with. Yes. Caregivers. I'm so unpolished. So when they go into these roles, I guess, or these task periods or whatever the word is that I'm trying to get out, do you see a difference based on who passed away, how they passed away, that they're able to grieve in that process? Is there one that's more traumatic? Is there one that tends to be a stage or a task where they get more stuck depending on where that loss comes from? I mean, again, I know this is, I'm generalizing and asking you, and I know every single person's different, but is there anything that you see that is consistent with a pattern of Like trends, any like, yeah. First, well, even back to that hospice job, I mean, one thing that they taught us at the very, very beginning was like how you assess how somebody's going to be. Like, what are the predictors of how somebody's going to cope? So probably one of the main things that I look at is what their support system looks like. So whether it was a sudden loss or an expected loss, like the support system is huge. And that really does make a big difference on how somebody's going to kind of be along their journey. 
through their grief process. So, I mean, obviously there are people that have like complete support and when it's still a sudden and traumatic loss, you know, that's one of the things that I find, like when people come in to see me, they may feel as though they're even their support system, their friends, their family don't want to hear it anymore. Right. Cause mm. our society is kind of this death denying society. You get three days bereavement leave and you better get back to work and like have a smile on your face. And so a lot of times people will feel as though they don't want to oversaturate their support. Mm -hmm. So they are going to come and, you know, and talk with somebody. And like, I look at grief as really like the human experience. We all will go through it. It is not anything that any of us are going to not experience regardless. So that helps normalize kind of for people coming in. It's not that they're coming in to see a specialist because there's something wrong with them, mm -hmm. like that stigma so much. There's so much in what you both just said that I'm taking notes here because I do want to get to the support aspect. But before we do that, I want to mention kind of on a, on a selfish note that one of the things that Dr. Boken and I talk about a lot on a lot of our podcasts, regardless of what the topic is, all roads kind of lead back to control, at least for me. And when you were talking before, Karen, about the tasks of mourning and the four steps that kind of you gear your patients towards, I started reminding myself that one of the things that I'm fascinated about death one of the reasons that I'm fascinated about death, what I have learned in my own real therapy and also our unpolished therapy is it's a control piece, right? And one of the things that I have tried to work through is this concept that because I am so linear and Dr. Boca knows this about me, I'm <laughs> yes. not very gray. It's very black and white and I have tasks and I want to check them off my list. I have in my warped unpolished mind convince myself, well, what if I pre-mourn? What if I do all these steps, whether it's, you know, Elizabeth's rules that now I know like don't really apply to the people who are here grieving or your philosophy. If I could just do that now, like maybe Sunday at three o'clock, I could go through the phases. And then when a loved one of mine passes away, I won't feel the burden of loss and grief nearly as much. And I know it's crazy. As I say a lot, if I feel that way, I, I know I'm nuts, but there's got to be other people that maybe have that rationale that let me deal with this now so that I don't have to do it later or the blow won't be nearly as invasive. Can you speak to that a little bit? That is really interesting. I have one thought right now. Are you just basically like in your mind doing a funeral of like all the people that you know and love and like kind of going through that process ahead of time? Or is it, or, you know, like, oh, that would be, I feel, I feel like I watched a show where that literally is what happens. Well, I mean, funeral. again, I'm calling myself out. I'm being vulnerable. I mean, again, I use my warped sense of humor, I think, as a complete defense mechanism because death is something that I'm uncomfortable with. So I say mm -hmm. that I'm comfortable with it. And I want to talk about it because I want to learn. I want to understand. But if you want to come and see like my bedside drawer to see like the stack of eulogies that are, <laughs> you know, the rough drafts are there. I, I know it's crazy, but I think that that is my control or as Dr. Broca would say, my lack of control and trying to hold on to something that I can manage. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you're definitely not crazy, right? We no, all have our all. things. No. Oh my gosh. And I, you know, even like, let's just say there's some like with anticipatory loss, like there's somebody who is at, who, you know, for a fact will be dying and they're going through this anticipatory loss 
loss, which is a thing, right? As a caregiver, as a family, even that when their loved one dies, Mm -hmm. it's like a shock. It's like as though they didn't even know it was going to happen. That's a normal reaction. Now to what you're saying, I kind of get that this whole like eulogizing or this whole like thinking about it. I don't know that it's going to change your grief process, to be honest with you, but I think of it because the work that I do has has definitely impacted how I approach life in like a meaning and purpose and what my relationships mean for me that I think about death a lot, you know, yeah. and, those, and these relationships. So there, I think there's something to be said for a touch of that. Anyway. Here's a question for you. Do you think that back to, you know, we, we really can't plan it out. I get that, right? I wonder if you're surprised by patients who, let's say they have an unbelievably beautiful relationship with the loved one versus someone who has a tenuous relationship. And then you would think again to the layman, oh, well, if I didn't have a great relationship with so-and-so, maybe my grieving process will be easier. But in turn, it ends up, is it potentially the roles are reversed or what's your experience with that? So, so there's a term called complicated grief Yep, or grief that has like some more pathology. If you want to look at it, I don't like that term. They're throwing that, they're looking at some Mm -hmm. diagnostics with that. I don't personally like that because I don't think that we should be diagnosing in a way for insurance companies. For sure, if there's a like not a great relationship and like how does that kind of impact what their grief is going to look like? If what you're saying is the theory, well, if I have like my husband, we'll go back to my husband who now my nickname is now Dr. Death. Thank you very much. If <laughs> I didn't have a great relationship with him, God forbid, but we know when he dies, will I be like kind of okay with it because we have a crappy marriage? No. Because this complicated grief phenomena that happens is real and it impacts people, their emotional state and their way of navigating and their journey and all this other stuff can kind of happen. So that's a no. Yeah. And I love how you said that, Karen, because I think what happens is just like any other issue that comes up in therapy, right? There's so many layers to it, right? And things like in the complicated part, if you have a complicated relationship, issues like regret or remorse or shoulda, woulda, coulda's or the guilt then of wishing them dead, right? Or the guilt of not having had a better relationship would surface that would be different than I'm assuming, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you know, sometimes I put my Dr. Boca hat on even when we have a guest that for somebody who had this, you know, 60 year marriage with somebody and they have a broken heart, but they don't necessarily have all of those exact reactions. They may wish that they had had more time or they may hold on to that one fight that they had in the 60 years, but they other issues surface. How do I go on without this person because they've been so part, so much a part of my life versus, well, now that this guy's dead, right? Can I go on with my life in a different way? Would that be a fair way to kind of Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And you said it, especially with the guilt piece. So mm-hmm. the guilt and shame or those how those become an intricate part of what they're experiencing or the magical thinking concept like oh we mm-hmm. had such a fight and this is not just children you know when I when I work with kids we talk about magical thinking oh I had such a fight with my loved one and now they're not here and it's my fault if we hadn't had a fight adults do the same thing you know all of these other like you know they had marriage issues to begin with if they had stressors financial stressors whatever is going on in the relationship some of those things I'm working so much at my guilt is I, I should have spent more time had I done that maybe this one happened had 
had we found better doctors, had we just had more time right. to go see other specialists, mm-hmm. you can go down the rabbit hole there with guilt. Right. And I think that it brings up so many other things that even people that are in therapy at the time when something happens, I assume you deal with the crisis that's ahead of the loss. But I'm sure that even in that, so many things that hadn't been brought up in the past now surface in a different light through this loss. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, a relationship of a loved one who died, whatever, when a loss happens now, those things just get enhanced. It doesn't make it just like tuck away in a nice, neat bed that's made and everything makes sense. Sometimes it's all just like, like the puzzle pieces are just thrown all over the place trying to figure it all out. I wonder too, last week we had a conversation about attachment styles when we talk about other forms of therapy or other issues in relationships and so on and so forth. I wonder if there's some type of fabric that gets woven in in your childhood or even whatever therapy you may or may not be in as a young adult or adult or at whatever age you experience grief and then how those life experiences play into the grief process. Right, for sure. I mean, a a lot of attachment theory, and I know there are people that really do specialize in attachment, but it's based, you know, on Boldy, based on developmental phases, but grief and attachment can really be interwoven as how somebody's going to grieve. If they had a insecure attachment, avoidant, Mm -hmm. anxious, there's all these Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. types of attachment. If they had those kinds of relationships, their grief process can very much be impacted and can have a much more difficult time through their process too. So I think it's important for us to kind of look at that, you know, whenever we're doing counseling, if it's individual counseling, versus, you know, in a family counseling situation, kind of really exploring what was that relationship like? How did they feel connected to that person? Were there some challenges with the connection that they're bringing to the table anyway? Yeah. And Rachel, I was going to actually hit on that when you were talking about, you know, can I grieve and start mourning the loss then? You know, I was always taught that the amount you grieve, and this is such a fallacy to some degree, but the amount you grieve is related to the... How much you love. Well, the, how much you love and the connection that you have to that yeah. individual. But I don't know if you want to speak to that, but that wasn't the question I actually yeah. had. I'll just say one thing about that, that because people, you know, I have my client today that she just experienced the death of a child and Mm. she has a lot of trauma history. Mm. Very hard for her to cry, very hard for her to release emotion. And we're trying to tap into that and letting her experience that, that through mourning. So Mm -hmm. we use the term grief a lot, but there is something called, you know, the grief is that inward process. Mourning is that outward expression, which is the tears, which is that release. And Mm -hmm. so everybody may grieve internally, you know, we don't see it, but one of the goals is to allow people to mourn to outwardly express. And that kind of brings up something. And one of our listeners that has chimed in a million times and is a very dear friend of mine, she lost her daughter last year. It's been exactly a year. And one of the things that came out in the service when we were talking to the clergy was, what do you do when somebody asks you, how are you doing, right? So as a therapist, I'm sure you're giving them skills. And what she said is, I'm grieving. Right. And that was like kind of the response. Like, obviously, I'm grieving. That's that's where I'm at right now. But I, I want to flip that because I think this is a question that all of our listeners have. And we've talked about it when we had a guest on who had gone through cancer. But I think this is the natural state because it's such an uncomfortable topic. And I'm sure you're going to give us some of the cliches also. But what can we do when somebody's going through this process? What, you know, 
everybody's there at the beginning and then they disappear, right? We've all been there. We've all been on both sides of it. But what are some things that just through talking about or, you know, what you've studied, talking about it with your patients or other people you know, that has been helpful? Or what can we as people who are not in that moment experiencing that immediate loss, what can we do to be there for our friends or family members? I think that's so important. And because kind of going back to it's something that makes many people uncomfortable. So they will either do nothing and say nothing because they think, well, I don't want to bring it up because I don't want to make them sad. So I'm just not going to bring it up, which really what people want is is to say their loved one's name, is to let me show you a picture. Let me tell you, you know, when they're ready, obviously we need to follow their cues. But one of, I think the biggest problems that people do is we have to kind of check in with ourselves first. When I, when I was teaching grief and bereavement counseling, one of the main assessments, one of the main things that we do is we got to check in with ourselves first, how we feel about loss. So, so if we're looking to support others, it's kind of, putting ourselves in check a bit and knowing that it may make us feel uncomfortable, but it may actually make us feel really connected to the person that we are supporting. If it's our friend or if it's our family member, whomever it is. So obviously letting them share, letting them talk, being an amazing listener, that's probably one of the best things is really being present. I'll have, when I do consultation, when people ask me for consultation, they want to know what's the script? What should I actually (laughs) say? Like a therapist will say, Mm -hmm. what do I say when they say this? Like, I don't know, maybe I'm giving my secret away. It's really so much about the relationship. There isn't such a script anyway in therapy. So, but we really, it is about being present, being a good listener, and also not telling them what to do. Everyone's got an opinion. Oh, I know how you feel. I had like, let's say they're talking about their mother that died or their child that died. Oh, I know exactly what that feels like. My grandmother died. She was 95 years old. And this is what I did. Like, Mm -hmm. you you know, I think that's something that really is not healthy or helpful for clients when people try to relate in a way that really isn't the same whatsoever. So we have to just respect how they're grieving, what they're going through and being a, a really good listener. I think it's important for us to take pause on that because it seems so, of course, that's what we should do. But so many of us make that mistake and not because we're doing it out of any kind of ill will, but we really want to relate. We want to empathize. We want to mm-hmm. be able to say, oh, you know, I do understand what you're going through. But then when it, the person who's, you know, head griever, right, you could see if they're angry or frustrated or confused or just completely lost. It. I re- recently read an article where someone had passed away and the friends, all they wanted to do was show their support. And I understand because what had happened to me and the griever, right, was like, okay, fine, you win. All right. You win. And Mm -hmm. then it became such a tumultuous interaction. And I can see where it gets a little challenging because all we really do want to be is helpful and supportive. And somehow we just shit the bed. So I love that you said, let it be about that person. Just listen. Sometimes that pause is the loudest thing and the most important thing you can do to just be present for someone else to know that you're there. Right. Totally holding space. It is like, I think one of the most sacred things. If I'm with somebody, whether it's somebody that I love, a friend or family member, and I can just be present for them, of course, my clients too, but they just need that space held that it's okay, that they can feel what they're feeling with no judgment, with no advice giving, with no like, 
one-upsman. Oh yeah, I did this. I went through that. Just really holding that space. What happens in a scenario? And I guess it could be any scenario. It could be family members mourning the loss of a particular member of the family. It could be friends who are grieving. What happens though, if you want to be there for someone who's lost a loved one, but you yourself are grieving that individual Mm -hmm. too. And again, it's not a competition. The relationship might be a little bit different. I'm sure there's a sliding scale. Well, this was my spouse, but this was my sibling. This was my best friend. How do we navigate our way? Maybe again, there is no right way or wrong way, but what in your experience would you say to our listeners? Right. And that is, that is the truth. Grief is such an individual process. There is really no right or wrong. And when it's a family, like that's why I really prefer not sometimes at the beginning of a crisis, we'll do some family sessions, but I like to break it out because what happens is everyone's trying to protect one another. Mm -hmm. So somebody Mm -hmm. may not express what they're really feeling for a concern like that, upsetting their family member. You know, if it was the dad that died, if mom's coming in and the adult and the kids are coming in, whether adult or younger, they, you know, so often they're going through their own experience. Mm -hmm. But let's say it's her husband who died, you know, she'll say, gosh, my adult kids still have their spouse. They've still got their young kids. I have to go home to an empty bed all the time. So mm-hmm. it isn't like a competition of grief because everybody's got their very unique experiences. But it could also sure. be, I want to be so strong for the other people in my family. Yep. I don't mm-hmm. want them to see that I'm really breaking down. So now totally. I'm doing everything for everyone. Now I make sure everyone goes to sleep. I've checked in on everyone in our wheelhouse. And now I'm going to sit in the corner and sob myself to sleep. I don't know how to ask, or I, I right. and maybe that's where you come in. That's why I got to call Karen. <laughs> got to help me through the process. And Karen, is this true? To, uh, speaking of that, you know, Rachel points, brings up a good point. And, uh, you know, I have my own personal opinions about it through my own grief. But do we tend to, during grief amongst the family, do we take on the family roles and the family dynamics typically that were always there? Or does grief complicated and everybody is in a free-for-all in these uncharted territories? And then what winds up happening is that competition for grief or it becomes a tumultuous, forget the grief piece of it, but now we have a whole tumultuous, dysfunctional, you know, out of equilibrium um, dynamic and families get torn apart, et cetera, et cetera. What typically happens in that? Right. Because now what we're talking about is the human condition, because depending on people's personalities, who knows what the family dynamic was like to begin with, right? Who was the favorite child? And now that person's not there. So like, it's like completely off kilter what the family dynamic is all about. So I think you have to kind of look at that and recognize that are, were there some issues? I mean, this just happened recently where the will was just was just shared and like there's some real shakeout of what's happening with the yep. financial piece of it and like where money, you know, that you could apparently have a great support system in a family and then all of a sudden now we're talking disbursement of funds and that yeah. can really be a challenge. With yeah, it really afterwards. complicates it. Yeah, oh, yeah. It may, and it complicates the griefing process because totally. now it adds in all these feelings and all these emotions that we didn't necessarily have when we walked into your office to begin with or started this morning process. And then it becomes, you know, we're now saying bad things or we're now feeling guilty because we've been put in this position and how do we react? And do we react according to how the dead person would have wanted us to react or to re- re- react based on our own feelings in that moment. So, And also when there's been like any potential of 
Because one of the things that happens is people just want to make sense of what happens. Let's say their loved one had a medical situation or mm-hmm. a car accident or something. And there's they want to direct blame. Like, how could this have happened? It must have been the doctor. It was the person that hit my loved one. It, you know, whatever it is. So if legal gets involved, if there's any kind of litigation, going back to like complicated grief, like that throws the whole grief process on its head. And and now you're looking at like a really lengthy, intense, acute, you know, situation acutely. And then complicated as time goes on that can really make it hard. Whereas if I'm not suggesting people shouldn't sue, I mean, that's, you know, people have the right to do whatever they need to do, but just to know that it can really impact the grief process as well. And, you know, can lengthen it if you want to look at it that way, for sure. All these other factors kind of come into play. You guys, this is probably a great time to reiterate that this is not real therapy. It certainly does seem like we're diving in deeply to some real therapeutic concepts here, but we want to protect Dr. Boga. We certainly want to protect Karen as well. This is not real therapy. This is complete generalization as it relates to grief counseling, bereavement, loss, things of that nature. Today with Dr. Boga, and as I would like to affectionately refer to Karen as now Dr. Death. (laughs) Karen, let's say we're dealing with a real grade A tragedy, right? No one could prepare for it. Chances are, let's say it's a child who, uh, in, in the hierarchy of, of what we normally sure. see, a parent would die before a child. So, sure. but, or even an adult too, an, an unforeseen accident, sure. and it's real top notch. Um, tragic. The shooting, the shootings. The shoot, okay. Example. That's a perfect example, also, right? Or the death of a child, which many of the right, parents, right, right. that is what happened. Right. The mm-hmm. death of their children. So, you know, we always talk about, again, and with my issues with control and whatnot, if we could just understand the why, but why did it happen? Or it right. doesn't make sense. Or the person was perfectly healthy. And how could this have happened? Do you find that patients of yours or in the work you do, we point to something, whether it's someone's religion that they Mm. tap into, whether it's something along those lines, maybe they weren't religious before, but now they have no choice. How do we make meaning out of the mess Mm -hmm. that Dr. Boga and I have been using that phrase a lot in 2023, when the mess is just so unbelievably chaotic and it's senseless? Mm-hmm. No doubt, for sure. I mean, the why is one of the hardest things, right? And knowing that there may not be an answer in a way that makes sense. Rabbi Kushner wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Yeah. And that's in, mm-hmm. he was a rabbi. It's like a classic book. And he, I think it was his son, his child had died. And I refer people to that book all the time because the end of it really is about there really is no answer. Why not? Why should his experience have been spared? because he's a good person and did amazing things in his life and had to bury his child. So sometimes there's really no answer to the why and which is really, really hard. And I think as the grief, as people are working through their grief, they, that might always be there, but hopefully not impacting so much in such an intense way. And, and from a meaning and purpose, like meaning in the mess, I mean, that is so much how I try to really approach things is meaning and purpose, right? And mm-hmm. some things have, like, it just doesn't make any sense. And also we we may not even know the why for a long, long time. We can't always know. We may never know it, right? We never and know. So to me, when you were going through the tasks earlier, I'm thinking, gosh, accepting the reality of the loss, that is really, I would imagine for most people, really such a long 
for a lot of people, a long phase, especially when you're asking these why questions, like, why did that happen, you know, the school shooting? Why did that accident happen? Why did the doctors not be able to save this person when, you know, they saved the other person who was 10 times more complicated than this one, right? So I've got to imagine that process. You know, I sit here and I've been on the the side of um, the therapist. I've been on the side of the patient going through tragic losses. But I guess somebody who inundates themselves with this day in and day out and is Dr. Death, how do you manage all of that going through and trying to help them make meaning of the mess or accepting the reality of the loss and dealing with all the emotion that's coming out? And then just as you're making the progress, you know, the lawsuit comes in or the, you know, a family member disrupts. How do you contain all of this and how do you process all of this for yourself? So- if what you're saying is how do I do what I do and be able to do it every single day, like and for function personally and function, yeah, and still so keep a smile my shirt on your face says and have a sense of humor. Plug oh, for Peloton, um, <laughs> my water bottle, Peloton. Peloton, okay. It, uh, it literally like exercise is definitely the thing. It's balance. I mean, I could never do this work if I don't have balance in my life. When I first started out, I would take it all in at the very, very beginning because I was a newbie. And I remember sure. coming home and like, especially when I started private practice, like, first of all, I couldn't believe people were like referring people to me. This is like a night. 99. And I'm like, Oh my God, who am I? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I don't care that I had seven years of hospice. I don't know, but I learned a ritual and I don't really do it anymore, but I would light a candle when I got to my office, hold space for all my clients, see everybody. And at the end of the day, I'd blow out the candle. And that was a ritual that to me signified the work is done and I'm driving home. Um, humor is everything. I like, I'm the therapist that I do not practice what I preach. I will recommend podcasts and books and all these great things for clients. I do not listen to them and I do not read them. (laughs) I listen to funny podcasts. All my podcasts are either music related or comedy. Um, that's, that is literally the stuff that I listen to. I am immersed in music. That is my go-to for well, sure. Hopefully unpolished therapy. Yeah. Well, that, that, that. That. You have to add unpolished therapy. <laughs> well, your, definitely. I'm, I'm going to be the biggest fan. Are there any things that are helpful across the broad scheme of going through this process, i.e. journaling, i.e. being in nature, i.e. going through pictures, cleaning out things, rituals, whatever that you have found have, you know, across the board seem to have been helpful to your patients or to the people that you've worked with over the years in whether it's in education or wherever? Yes, I always think it's important. And one of the things that is first kind of popping up kind of for those that have been caregivers is making sure that they are taking care of themselves physically because oftentimes they've neglected their own physical health that they've been caring for their loved ones. So one of the first things is make sure you get yourself checked out, take care of yourself physically for sure. So things to do, support groups for some are wonderful. There's some really amazing, and now in our virtual world, we're sitting here virtually, that there's a lot of great online support um, and in person as well. And for many, it's really helpful to not feel so alone alone and when they can connect to others that are in similar situations, having that support, you know, in a group situation is helpful too. And having certain things like your own self-care, prioritizing what you need to do, making sure you're getting rest, making sure that you're eating healthy, exercise, you know, some of those basic fundamentals are really, really helpful. The journaling, there's some really great grief journaling that are specific just to grief that are really great to do 
as well. I'm a big fan of, like I said, music. So outlets, whatever that may look like. So it might be somebody's going to get back involved with a hobby that they weren't really able to do before, or they can use it in a way that's super kind of connecting meditative those mm-hmm. that start knitting all of a sudden, you know, it's like a really great thing to do. And and using that as a way of kind of grounding too. I'm a big fan of meditation and mindfulness stuff. Mm-hmm. There's some specific ones for grief, but just general, because there's a lot of anxiety that comes around these feelings. So grounding, 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 you know, is really important. And I think one of the main things is just like, be kind to yourself. You know, we place all these expectations of how we're supposed to be, what mm-hmm. we should be doing. There's no right or wrong way to grieve and just kind of be gentle self-care. Self-care is not selfish. I know that expression is used a lot, but it's really, really true kind of going in with what that looks like. Right. And I was going to say, as simple as it sounds, it's okay to not be okay. Go easy on yourself, right? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I want to dive into something here. I have two points to make, and I'm sure by the time I finish the first point, I'm not going to remember the second. So forgive me in advance. Sometimes we hear, oh God, he or she never got over the death of so-and-so, right? And now they've lived decades and they just haven't been able to put their life together, right? And it's so sad to me, right? And and I would imagine that that's one of two things. Either they just completely went down the rabbit hole of denial and they just couldn't climb out. They didn't do the therapy work that you have to offer. And it leads me to the question of, we live in a world now where we're inundated with content, Mm -hmm. right? Technology and our phones and content, 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 even though the context sometimes is not as balanced as it should be. We've looked at death as something that's so taboo, maybe because we're afraid of it and we don't have the answers to these whys. But I wonder when I try to connect the dots with people who, again, gosh, they 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 never got over it. How come our society is not putting more of an emphasis on the healing and the right way to manage it when all we are seeing with the content are these suicides mm-hmm. and unforeseen deaths and tragic incidences and whatnot. To Dr. Boca's point, when we first started the podcast, it doesn't seem like there's a correlation between wanting to learn until we're faced with tragedy. Does that make sense? Right. I I think what you're saying is like, even though our society may be like, let's not go there. It's a bit taboo. makes us all really uncomfortable, but we're consumed Mm -hmm. with, I think about the show. Remember when Euphoria first came out? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys watched that, but that was like, oh my gosh, you know, and there's all this intensity going on and other, another show. Oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name of it. Six Feet Under. Remember Six Feet Under? Oh my God, I loved that show. I loved it. I think that was my first like, entrance into the (laughs) fantasy or the ideology behind death. And I was fascinated. Yeah. 
that was an amazing show. I miss that show. And maybe that's it. Maybe like the analogy of how men don't express emotions except for when they're watching football. Like that <laughs> seems to be the only time they can like get upset so and scream right. and cry. Mm-hmm. I mean, hey, I'm a Cowboys fan. We're out. We lost last oh, week. Oh, so. I, I don't know if we can be having this conversation anymore. Eagles. Eagles. Oh, I know. Sorry. Okay, it's been really nice. It's I know. Been a pleasure. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs> so much for referring people to you. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh my God. I don't know if I could root for the ego. Oh, okay. I don't know. We'll see. I may have to root for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Sorry. It's all good. I it's can counsel good. you on this at any time. I got a Thank couch. You. Don't worry. I know. Thank you. So, um, yeah. So maybe it's only through this content. Look at video games. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at all this stuff. I mean, I remember doing a research project on this issue about aggression and video games and death yep. back in grad school. Like, it's not changed at all. It's as though those are the only ways that we can tap into it is through the content. I think what Rachel's also alluding to is when we had Jen McKenzie on talking about college, you know, I I mentioned like, we're all like mental health, mental health, mental health. And yet we're pushing our kids so far and we're, you know, creating this problem. Same thing with this. It's like, they're seeing it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And yet we really aren't great at talking about it. We definitely aren't great at pre-talking about it way before it happens, right? Right. But it's, we can't avoid it anymore. It's everywhere we turn all day long and shame on us that we haven't developed a more appropriate way of not to go as far as Rachel's pre-grieving, but to at least make it a conversation at the dinner table or, you know, say, hey, we all experience this. There are different ways to grieve, you know, even the slinky analogy, right? Where it is a process and some days you're going to be good and some days that pain is going to overtake you and that's okay. We don't have to weigh ourselves down by it or, oh, you know what? Like, yes, it creates anxiety. Let's talk about the anxiety so that when something happens, we can go through the mourning process in a functional way. I think it's so important what you're saying, because really the message I think for us, our society as we're raising kids to be, have emotional intelligence is look at golden opportunities to talk about death, to talk about grief. What are we doing when kids have a pet, Mm -hmm. have a goldfish? You could start so young, use the language, the actual language, death, died, not the euphemisms of little Joey, the fish went to sleep, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, as you're taking your kids for a walk down the street and they see like a little lizard that got like smushed by a car, you start teaching the language young because when we can do that, we're just going to create a much better society that isn't going to fear talking about death and it will help normalize the whole experience. Kind of what I was saying earlier, it is the universal human experience we all go through anyway. So those things help looking for golden opportunities for sure. And when you said the word fear, I think that's really what it boils down to in the simplest terms. We're afraid of what we don't know and we don't know how to find comfort in that fear. And I think the fear is normal, but nobody wants Mm -hmm. to talk about it because it is this taboo topic, so to speak. And at least for me, if there was a way, I don't know, maybe this is your new thesis project. I, I don't know, but to not even about normalizing it because I think we to some degree have, but 
to find safety in the fear of what we don't know. And that's where I was pointing to, I don't know if people use religion or whatever their mantras may be, or through the process of your work that you do to feel safe in a topic that feels really, really scary. And that that in and of itself is loss. Right. And it's interesting because when I have clients that have kind of a more, say, religious background per se, traditional religious, you know, Catholics, if they're taught you will be reunited with your loved Mm -hmm. ones when they die, Mm -hmm. that there's some comfort that's there. There's some understanding that's there. And tradition, like when they've done research on this, traditionally, they will say that those who've had some type of incorporation of what that looks like actually feel a little bit more comfort. And I do think because we all have this like death anxiety, existential anxiety, Mm -hmm. because nobody actually really knows, I guess, unless you've done like near death experience work, which is really interesting too, that you were on flatline. Do you ever see the movie Flatliners? I don't know if I did. Yeah, with Kevin Bacon. Oh my God, it's such an old movie. I'm so bad. Where he like he flatlines and he dies and then he comes back and he like has a whole you know, I mean I I, again here I go with my crazy. But if there was, you know how like you could sign up and go to space now, like time I travel. Right. I knew yeah. you were going to say like, that, Rach. If, I, I knew it. if there was a way that I could experiment just to, again, it's a control thing to just mm-hmm. know, I think more to come back and assuage my loved ones and to know what it's like. And it is okay. And we either will be reunited or we won't be reunited, but that wherever we go, when we do pass away from this physical world, we're good. Yes. I think that's beautiful, Rach. And I think it's true. And I can speak from my own unpolished experiences, right? Like if I'll go to a wake, right? And then I'll go to their services the next day or whenever it is. I don't remember all the processes of how it happens. But my goodness, like I'm clearly not Catholic, but there is something that is peaceful about knowing that they are going to be reunited with you know the Heavenly Father or however they phrase it. And to our listeners, like this is a little out of my genre, but I can tell you that that is comforting to me. Or when I hear how different religions kind of process and believe about death, and I've got to imagine, and I was thinking about it as you were talking, like it does, it kind of grounds you in something to remain hopeful or to remain optimistic and and to not be scared right take away the fear yeah and it's to take away the fear and also to know that's not necessarily the end some religions don't believe it is the end and so you will see that person or the spirit continues whatever the case is so i do think that and and i do think that rituals become like you were saying how you ended your session i believe there's death rituals that people do during that process i and you're nodding your head yes to our listeners absolutely yes because well you know being being jewish you know what we have yeah you know that's the one thing we have the there's a whole book uh that i read many many years ago the jewish ways of mourning and there are many other books but we have so many built-in rituals from what technically supposed to happen even within the first 24 mm-hmm. hours, how quickly the burial is, what the seven right. days of Shiva are, the 30 days of Sloshim, the first year till the, the yard site of the anniversary mm-hmm. of the death. These rituals give people comfort yeah. and something to hold on to. And many religions have various types of rituals that are helpful and can tap into that spirituality. You know, again, we're talking organized religion. I think there's some sense of even spirituality, mm-hmm. even of, of nature, the ocean. I, I use that analogy of the ocean as well with grief, but 
connecting with the, the universe and, or, or whatever. If I'm at the beach, I feel very grounded and centered in something more. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you talk about that. I was with friends of mine the other day who, and we were intrigued about finding somebody who can help us connect to our loved ones, right? There's something about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A medium that Mm -hmm. is scary, right? Because you don't know what you're going to get speaking to Rachel's fear, but also this, oh my gosh, would they have something that is comforting? And one of the girls shared that she had gone once and she was too afraid for them to do it to her. But there's this woman that kept going like once every couple of months. And so the medium knew who they were and would channel the the deceased. I think it was a daughter, but don't quote me Mm -hmm. on that. And the comfort that came over and the understanding, whether true, not true, your belief, not your belief. What, you know, and I say this to my patients all the time, and maybe you ascribe to this as well, whatever works that helps, it's okay. Use what works. I mean, I'm not advocating for, you know, drugs and, you know, drinking yourself into a healthy, stupor. Healthy, healthy Thank skills. you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The other thing that I wanted to say that you said a while ago, and I think is so paramount to everything, and it ties even to Rachel's pre-morning, is the relationship, right? And that is why, as a mental health counselor and somebody, I'm actually a psychologist last time I checked, but, you know, in the <laughs> mental health world, that I always advocate for connection, whether it's your social support, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a partner, a child, whomever it is, just having a relationship is really the curative factor. It is how we are wired as people, which is why death is so painful because it is a loss of that connection. But if you can find somebody to connect and to just listen and build that trust and that relationship with while you're going through the process, in time, at least this has been the experience that my patients have said and I've experienced, in time, even though that that loss is still very much there, it kind of moves into the background or the backdrop and it doesn't become the ever-present because you have another relationship or other relationships. So when you go to that stage that you were talking to about adjusting to the world without the person there and finding ways to remember, that to me that I use with my patients is you go through the first couple of months, years, depending on how long your grieving and mourning goes, and you wonder how you're going to get past the first minute, literally. Like, how do I put one foot in front of the other to get to that next minute? And minutes feel like hours and hours feel like years. And slowly, and especially with a Jewish marker of a year, you've gone through all the firsts of everything. And now you look back and you say, holy shit, how the hell did I go from not being able to put my foot in front of the other and one minute without thinking to this person? And now, I can go, God willing, many days or many hours at least at this point without making it the forefront of everything. And you've gone through all the first anniversaries, which are always the hardest. You've created a life and you can look backwards and see that you have been able to get through this journey and this process. So I just really want to point out the relationship piece because I think it's so, so important. So thank you for letting me be on my soapbox for like a hot second (laughs) on your topic. No, it's so true. Relationship is everything. It really is connection, community. And it's not about the amount of people. It's just about having somebody. And it's really, really true that going through that year, I'll have clients come in like it's practically like they're in the fetal position on the couch. Mm -hmm. Like it is so raw and so intense. And when I can see the journey, 
another guy I love that I studied with, Alan Wolf, focuses on companioning through grief, children mm. and grief men. Like we're on, he would have in his property out in Colorado, like a an old Jeep. And he and his client would just sit there together and just kind of talk and be there because you're on the journey with them, letting them lead. And, and that is really a lot of what I do is I'm kind of a, a companion on their journey with them. They can't see that they'll ever be able to put one foot in front of the other or make it to the next minute. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it boggles my mind how I hate, sometimes we've used this word very cliche now, but the resilience of resilience. people, but it's true. I've seen it over and over again of, of what a lot of it, depending on the relationships and the people in their lives, how they can navigate and get at least somewhat of the glimpses of being on the other side through the other side. We're always going through it. You're mm-hmm. never over it. You don't get over it like the cold or flu or COVID or whatever. And Karen too, I think that with your expertise and time, we, back to cliches, we don't like them, but it is like you're seeing someone with a big open wound just bleeding out when you mm-hmm. first meet with them. And through that journey over time, the wound, it's always like, you know, the scarring is there and you can always point to it, but the healing process closes up that wound and it's not nearly as raw and bloody and murky as you go through the process, but not to undermine the pain and the suffering that someone does have to go through to get to that other side, whatever that other side may be. To your point, the acceptance of it and um, how to put one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. And then the beauty of remembering. And, you know, I always say the best way that you can honor your loved ones is to keep that dialogue open, to continue to talk about that person, to not bury it again, no pun intended, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. But to keep them active and alive in your thoughts, because that's such a beautiful thing. And in my opinion, that does help heal. You know, the scar is always there, but but there's a term called continuing bonds, and that's Mm. what that's about. It's so much about that. It's keeping that relationship just because they're not here doesn't mean, you know, just because my parents aren't here doesn't mean they're not my parents. Well, yeah, Mm -hmm. I that is still, you know, just because somebody's sibling isn't here, somebody's child isn't here, they existed, they meant something that concept of continuing bonds, the bonds are still there, the the life review, the remembrances, mm-hmm. sharing in those stories. It's just, it really is, it's so important and meaningful. And I just have one more quick question because I love all of those things. And I'm a big proponent of put the oxygen mask on you before you put it on others. What would you say to our listeners who may also have children while they're going through this? Mm -hmm. Is there, um, you know, do we suggest they go right into therapy? Is there a way that we can give them some things that they can do also? Because it's so hard to grieve when you have to worry about other people in that process. Yeah, I've actually, I've had clients that I've said, sometimes you may even have to schedule it. You may have to put on your game face, that mask that just is kind of getting you out there. You got to take care of your kids. You've got to do whatever you got to do. But if it means, let's say you dropping your kids off, if it means going home and just giving yourself time to do absolutely nothing or to cry or to just be, be, you know, whatever you need to do to release that, make sure you are releasing it because unfortunately with grief, it's pay now or pay later. Mm -hmm. You're either going to deal with it now or you're going to have a delayed grief reaction and you're going to process later. So you may have to kind of fake it till you make it with your kids in certain scenarios to give yourself, you know, if it's that raw intensity. But on the other hand, 
back to what we were saying with the golden opportunities for kids, it's okay that they see you sad and upset. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we want to teach them that emotional intelligence and the language around what this is like. If you're showing them that you're sad and crying, if they are feeling sad, you're kind of normalizing it for them to be sad and to cry as well. Yeah, I love that. that. I think, again, because of the taboo-ness and the expectations that we place, and Rachel and I talk about this on the podcast all the time, we're constantly doing, 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 right? And we're so afraid to like stop for a second. And, you know, death stops us quite literally, right? If if we're the person who's dying, we are stopped. And if it's anybody else associated with that, the world stops spinning for a while and it's okay not to have to get up and make it spin again. So I appreciate you honoring that part of it for for all of us and for our mm-hmm. listeners. Karen, how do people find you? I know we've normalized therapy in and mm-hmm. of itself to a big degree in our society, but I wonder how many people actually know that there is a specific specialization with your craft and that death in and of itself is a topic that can be tapped into specifically for healing. Right. So people can find me literally by going on my website. You know, it's just my name, KarenRosenberg.com. But I am part of like some associations that are related to grief and loss. There's an association called the Association of Death Education and Counseling. If you have listeners that are outside of Florida that are trying to really find grief therapists, that is one place hospices really are a wonderful resource as well to try to find referrals. So again, if they're not local and trying to find, you know, support, that's always a great way to find somebody who's truly specialized. So there are those of us kind of in this niche area that we also, we can access and find referrals for one another too, if somebody's like reaching out that they need to find somebody in their area. So, but in terms of me specifically, my website, my Instagram, Karen LCSW, Facebook, Karen Rosenberg, LCSW, I think it is, something like that. <laughs> we'll link Don't everything on the bottom of the Please. podcast. Exactly. We got you it. covered. Don't worry, Smoke Karen. signals, whatever. Yes, absolutely. And they can absolutely reach out to unpolishedtherapy at gmail.com. And we have all of Karen's information as well as we will post it on our social media, which will be Instagram and Facebook at Unpolished Therapy. Rach, did I do great in that? Yeah, I mean, that is usually your line. Yes. <laughs> I mean, look at me pulling that out of my butt right now. So <laughs> let's Thanks. do some final thoughts. Karen, I'm so appreciative that you spent your time with us today. And I know the listeners will certainly kind of have to take a minute to decompress all this, as I know I am, because it is a heavy topic, but it is a topic that I think we can lighten up if we talk about it more. And I think that's where it becomes part and parcel. It's a tough conversation that we don't want to have, but by having the conversation, we can feel a little bit better and we can assuage some of that fear and feel a little bit more comfortable. So I know that I thank you and Dr. Boga, I thank you for even bringing up the topic in general today and bringing Karen on as a guest, but I am going to pass the buck to both of you. If you have any final thoughts, I'd love to hear it. I'm going to defer to Karen and then I'll do a closing remark, I guess, if need be. Sure. Um, First of all, thank you again so much. I love the opportunity to talk about this topic. Believe it or not, I really enjoy it. And uh, because you're warped like me, (laughs) because you're warped. (laughs) Pretty much. Give me the dark 
humor stuff on Netflix to watch. If you have any recommendations, I'm all in. You know, humor, but again, kind of going back to my first hospice days, there was so much laughter and joy for my first interview. I will never forget that. And what I now realize 28 years later, whatever, it is through that humor and the dark humor and the gallows humor that we use to cope. And it's not inappropriateness. It's really just, you know, a way of kind of dealing with all the stuff. For okay. Sure. So you know what I want you to watch? I'm going to give you, I'm oh, going to give please. you a, a reco right now because it's mm. timely in today's world. Have you either one of you, but if you want dark humor, you need to watch the menu. Have oh, you heard about the menu? Oh, I loved it. The movie. I mean, are we on the right? I mean, is that the right track? Is that, is that your humor? Okay. That okay. Was that's dark. awesome. I love, I loved it. So yeah, clearly right. I'm behind the eight ball yet again when it comes to this. And maybe that is a testament to the fact that I don't have the thought processes of Dr. Death and, you know, it's so dark and it's so demented and it's super unpolished. And I love that. (laughs) And I love it. And maybe I'll watch it. And most likely I'm going to come back and be like, I didn't even understand it. So, and then you guys can translate that and interpret what that means about me. And that's totally cool. But Karen, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You have always been somebody that I have, like I said at the beginning, had a high regard for. I always pass my people on to you because it is not a topic that I have specialization and specialty in. And if there is a Dr. Death out there, I mean, who else should you go see but Dr. Death? So this was truly my privilege to have you here. And it's been an honor to have you here. And Rachel, thank you for, I'd say, indulging us. But the truth is, this was for you. So thank you for joining in the dialogue and sharing your humor and your unpolishedness as always. And we hope, Karen, that one day you will come back and you will share some other amazing things because your resume is incredible. And Rachel, if you want to do the closing or if you want me to do the closing, it's entirely up to you. But thank you. Yeah, well, I'm just going to say in closing, obviously, death is not for the faint of heart. But with people like Karen, you definitely can help all of us soften our hearts a little bit to a scenario that is inevitable. So if it's going to be inevitable, we might as well get some knowledge about it on the front end. We'll be unpolished through it all and we'll get through. I appreciate both you fine ladies. Thank you so much for meeting on the corner of audacity and advice today. My wheels did get spun upside down (laughs) for sure. And I would imagine our listeners' wheels got spun upside down too. But Karen, thank you for helping us make meaning out of the mess. Dr. Boca, thank you for sharing your Wednesday morning with me. And this has been, as we we always say another episode of Unpolished Therapy. We'll see you next week, everyone. Great sesh, girls. Hey, everyone, like what you heard? Then don't miss out on what comes next. Subscribe now and please give the girls a five-star rating. Learn more at www.unpolishedtherapy.com. Find and like them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week when Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca ditch the couch, grab the mic, and break down all the wreckage. <laughs>